If you would, please, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. We continue in the section of the fall, chapters 3, 4, and 5. We will finish up this section. Remember, the first section was all about the formation uh, in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, paradise was created by God himself. And in chapter 3, 4, 5, we see the fall of the fall of man. We will see the fruit of sin today. We'll see the transformation, the changes that took place from the fall. And we will see. As we take a look at these chapters 4 and 5, we are in the antediluvian age. It's a time between the fall of man and the flood of the world during Noah's time. And it was during this age, in these two chapters, covers about 1,600 years of human history in these two short chapters. A lot of time. But it may feel like that will take that long to get through it today. But I will try not to make it feel that way. But as we take a look here in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we start off right from the very beginning here. Now. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Here in the very first verse here, now. Now after God had created the heavens and the earth, now after God he created man, Adam, and he took from Adam uh, the necessary DNA from his side to create Eve. He had created the animal world, the vegetation world, the plants, and all the things that we see. Now, we see in these verses that God reveals that Adam and Eve came together. And here is the very first specific mention of a sexual relationship between man and woman in the Bible. And it's referred to the word here as new. Adam knew his wife. And we see it was a very polite way of saying they had the sexual relationship and term used here very often in the Bible. We see it here in Genesis, but we also see it a couple times in Genesis, but we also didn't see it in Judges and 1 Samuel as a way of saying a husband and wife came together and became one. Now, if you notice she conceived and bore a child, a boy named Cain. She named this boy Cain. It's always good to have the moms name the, the, the kids. You know, it's usually it's very natural to do that, but you know, the men can do it as well. But, you know, sometimes they can get a little squirrely on some of the names that guys can come up with. So moms usually are pretty good about bringing that around for something that will work. But here she named him Cain. And she... And Cain means acquired. And so she is sitting here and says, I have acquired a man from God. Do you notice that he, she it recognizes that this child is from the Lord? This child is not technically from her and Adam, but from the Lord. That has not changed. Do you know that? You know that. When you have a child, it's his child who is, he is, for some reason, trusted the two of you to raise one of his children. It's a, I know it's a shocker sometimes for me as well. But he knows that he can use you. 
to raise up one of his children. And here she recognizes she's acquired a boy from the Lord himself. Now keep in mind, this is the first time they've seen a baby. Right? They were born, we have to take and assume that they were born as a, as a, 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 a as full functions adults when God created them. So here they're having a baby. Try that, ladies. What are you going to do for having your first baby? I don't know. You had plenty of people to ask about that. They didn't have that. They had to go through that experience and really trust in God and what was going to happen there with that birth. But she understand and recognized that this was acquired from the Lord. So here is Eve. Here is Adam looking at this baby boy and says, is he the seed that God promised us in chapter 3? Is this the Messiah? Is here the one that's the promised one who's going to make it all better and bring us back to the Garden of Eden and make it all back the way it was? Can you imagine that? They were kicked out of Eden. They're out there on their own. Things have been cursed. She had pain and, and birth. He's tilling the ground and he's getting the fruit, but it's been it's work, it's toil, it's sweat, it, and there's sorrow. And here their hope, her hope was the fact that he was the promised one. The Messiah that God had said would come from the seed of woman. In any under normal circumstances, parents want good things for their children, don't you? You have children, all you can think of is these great things of, of your children and what they can, will become and, how, and what God has in store for them. And they wonder if their children are destined for greatness. But we will find out quickly that even Adam will be very saddened because we will see also not only will she bear children, which in this case she did, but we will also see that the, one of the curses that she will bear in sorrow as well. And we will still we'll see that very clearly when Cain goes rogue and kills his brother. Great sorrow will be seen here in this chapter as well. They did not know that God Almighty would bring a few thousand years before the Savior would come. They were really hoping that this was going to be the Savior. She had faith to believe that this little baby she held in her arms would become a man, not just stay as a baby, but the baby would grow and mature to become just like her husband and her. Tremendous faith, right? Because they hadn't seen that. They hadn't seen a baby be born from the womb and then sit there and watch that baby having to be nursed and, and grow up and mature in, in such a short period of time. But there Adam and Eve wondered if their descendants would come forth, you know, fully mature. Is that how he's going to do it like he did us? He's going to take it from my side and the baby would come even? No, it just... Here she is now, her stomach, her body's changing and wondering what's happening. And Did God speak to him and reveal what was happening? We don't know. All we know is that she bore a child named Cain. With such promises, potentially for this child, 
But we see in verse 2, then she bore again. This time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. So obviously time has now passed. Because as a baby he wasn't a keeper of sheep. But he has obviously grown up. Now he's older and he's now a keeper of sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. One was a sheep herder. The other one was a, a farmer. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Cain means acquired. Abel means Vanity or vapor or emptiness. Not much there. But we see here right in the scriptures that these are not some grunting uh, cave dwellers and hunters as you know people said. Hunting for thousands of years living in caves. Here we are domesticizing animals and raising them up for the purpose of their living. We see here that not only they're taking care and herding sheep, but that we can also see clearly that their agriculture and they had the smarts and understanding. They were brilliant people and God gave them instruction and wisdom of how to be farmers and take care. And take the seeds that he created and use them in a way that would provide for them and their family. Incredible. Why is it such a a mystery to people when they go through history, when they just can look at the scriptures and see the truth, as we have already mentioned. We must teach our children the truth. Start with Genesis and teach your children the truth, especially the first three chapters, right into the fall here of chapter 4 and 5. But we see here that we can assume that Cain brought his offering to the edge of the Garden of Eden, where the cherubim was sitting there with the flames, the swords of flame of fire, keeping them from going back into the Garden of Eden so that they would not be tempted to touch or to eat the the tree of of, uh, life. Thank you. So they, they would not become immortalized or to have eternal life in the state of a fallen state of sin. That's why Jesus kept them out. But they came to the garden, they they dwelt, as we will see here, just east of the garden, exactly the same place where God said sent them out of the garden. And here they are coming back, and where there's a cherubim, we see in the scriptures, that is where God's presence is. So they were coming back and fellowshipping and receiving and talking to God during this time as they are outside of the garden. But there they are, the the tree of life we see in Genesis 3.24, the cherubim are always associated with that dwelling. And we see that in Exodus 25, verses 10 through 22. But here Cain and everyone else is on the earth at the time probably met with God right there at the eastern entrance of the garden so that they could communicate and continue to want to understand and to know that relationship with God. Yes, the consequences of the sin was to be kicked out of the garden, but if you remember in the scriptures, God, they believed by faith of God's promise of the Savior, and they lived by faith, and they continued to live by faith. They believed that Cain was even the, the actual, probably the promised one. And God, based on that faith, clothed them. That was the first sacrifice. 
so the, the pattern and the, the method of how and what God's expectations were somehow clearly communicated to those there east of the Garden of Eden who were dwelling with him and communicating with him and what was a sacrifice that was acceptable and not acceptable. Because it's very foolish of Cain and very foolish of any of us who out of our religious <coughs> understanding or our worldly ways think we can come and worship God in any way we would like. It's foolishness. God expects us to worship him the way he expects us to worship him. We don't get to define that. We don't get to compromise on that. And we see here that, that Cain came with an offering. Abel came with an offering. Cain came with the fruits that he agriculturally raised up. Or grew and said, this will be good. This is what I have. I'm going to come in and we'll, that's what I'll present to God as a sacrifice. But Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and the, along with the fat. Now, many assume this was the difference between the two offerings. One was vegetables and one was the meat. But remember, in the scriptures, grain offerings were acceptable before God in Leviticus 2. But it was not for atonement for sin. Grain offerings was not an atonement for sin. The sacrifice of an animal, the blood must be spilled. That's what was the covering of the sin. So Abel's a sacrifice was acceptable to God because we see in 1 John 3, 12, very clearly it was acceptable because he, he being able, was righteous before God. And that same verses, we see that Cain was evil. He was unrighteous. That is what was acceptable and unacceptable in the actual sacrifice. It was the heart, not as much as the actual material. Do you come to the table with the right heart? Do you serve God with the right heart? Do you worship him and, and talk to him or pray to him with the right heart? We also see in Hebrews 11.4, the writer of Hebrews clearly explains why the offering of Abel was accepted and the offering of Cain was rejected. It says in Hebrews 11.4, by faith Abel offered up a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. It was based on faith. Cain's was out of self-effort. Out of his own leaning of his own understanding. His, 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 his re dead religious method that he felt he could just come to God however he wanted to. Well, Abel's offering was made in faith and is a desire to worship God in spirit and in truth. That's why we come. We come to, to worship in his spirit and truth, not out of just duty, not out of tasks and works and all these other things to try to earn your way to uh, in pleasing God. That doesn't work. But Abel also brought, see, his first born of his flock and their fat that shows that Abel's offering was an extra special because we know that the fat of the animal was a prize or a luxury and was to be given to God when the animal was sacrificed and we see that God laying that out in the Leviticus, 
Leviticus chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and Leviticus chapter 7, verses 22 through 25. Because they would take that fat and they would burn it, remember? And in Leviticus 17, 6, we see that the burning of the fat and sacrifice before God is called a sweet aroma to the Lord. But we see a pattern starting here. And as you study the scriptures, you see patterns. You see the beginning of things. And you make note when it's first noted in the Bible. But we see here that there was a start that God sacrificed for, for mankind. Here we see a pattern where the mankind brings the one lamb for a man. Later at Passover, it will be the one lamb for a family. We'll continue to see in the scriptures the day of atonement. It was the one lamb for the nation. And then we see finally Jesus, who is the lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world, came for the entire world, John 1.29. But we see in the scripture here that God looked at Abel and, and he respected he looked upon, he acknowledged, he received what Abel was bringing by faith and his right, the righteousness that he's coming to the table with. Where God here in the verse says he did not respect Cain because he was out of evil, he was out of selfishness, it was out of a religious methodology of his own working. It wasn't by faith, it was by his own works that he was coming to God. And God didn't even look at Cain's sacrifice. It wasn't even acknowledged. And what was the result of that? What we see in the scripture is very clear. What happened is we see that, <laughs> that when he had happened in verse 5, he did not respect it in his offerings. Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. That completely tells you his response of where his heart was. When God points out something in your life that is not right and you respond out of anger and out of your depression and conscience, you just become this continence fall, you know your heart's not right. It's not God's fault. You need to examine yourself and get yourself right with God. You need to come back to Him by faith. Come back to Him the way he wants you to, which is a humbled spirit. Not a proud, religious spirit or a self-righteous type spirit, but a, a righteousness that's pleasing to God. But we see that God then calls him out. So the Lord is very gentle in verse 6. and says, and the Lord, so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? So he called him out on it. He called it the way it is. He knows his heart, right? He knows the heart. And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So we see here clearly that God is... Giving an opportunity for Cain to what? Repent. 
to acknowledge that he's angry, that he should not be angry. And what is he angry about? Who is he angry at? Uh, We will find that out. (laughs) We'll see in a few verses here who he was angry with. He was just angry and frustrated because when your heart's not right, you become angry and frustrated at everything and anybody. But God gives him an opportunity to repent, but he did not repent there. And then he gives him the reason why he, if you do well, won't you know you'll be accepted? If you come with the right heart, don't you know you that will be accepted and received by me? And then he gives him a warning to all of us. If you do not do well, there is a consequence. Sin lies at your door and its desire is for you to take you out. That anger you're dealing with is going to take you out. That depression you're getting yourself emotionally all wrapped up into your head and you're all emotional about this situation is going to open up opportunity for sin to come in and a desire to take you out. And how does it take you out? He tells us right there at the end of the verse 7. It will rule over you. Have you ever had your emotions rule over you for a day to two to three to four to a week? How productive was that for you? God says you and I must rule over those emotions. If, you're, if God says you can do that, that means you have the ability to what? With his help to overcome those emotions and to rule over those. Bring every thought under captivity, the scripture says. But God said to him, if you do well, change your attitude, change your heart here, change your frame of mind in this situation. Hey, it's not going to help you. As a matter of fact, you're opening up your opportunities for sin to come into your life, to dominate and rule over you, and it just messes your life up and everyone around you. So God made it very clear to him. You want to prevent sin from ruling over you? Allow God to master your life. Let him be the Lord of your life. Not your emotions, not someone else, not yourself in in any form or fashion. Allow God to master the Lord over your life and it will not rule. Your emotions and, and others will not rule over you. Because without God as your master, we will be slaves to sin. It's not complicated. Oh, I can't get rid of the sin. Oh, yes, you can. If you allow God to master your life. So many people and Christians today say, I'm a Christian, but they have no, they have no willingness or even a, a glimpse of understanding of allowing God to lord over them. To be the master of their life. To control everything they decide to do. They only give them the ones that they can't do themselves. God, I've tried it. Everything I can do. Now I'm in trouble. Can you come fix my problem, Lord, maybe? See, if we just allow him to to be our master, our Lord, that's what we pray. That's what we sing. That's what we say. But it's not just words, but we have to be doing it. We have to allow him to be master of our life, to rule over our life, so these things like Cain cannot come into our lives. 
Because if you don't, there's consequences. And we see in verse 8 exactly what happens. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. (laughs) I love that verse right there. It came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel and his brother and killed him. I always pondered on that verse and say, what did Cain say to Abel? And then the Lord just kind of just brought it to my memory this week and said, he basically said, Abel, I think you and I should just take a nice walk in the wilderness, out there in the field. Let's just you and me, bro. Let's just go for a walk. With the wrong intention. With the wrong heart. Because we see that they went for that walk in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Premeditated murder. He saw, he saw what was happening. He saw God recognize Abel. He became envy. He became bitter. He became angry. His countenance fell. And it wasn't so much against God as it was. He transferred that from God who's the one who rejected his uh, sacrifice, and he shifted that over to the one that's closest to him, his brother. He said, bro, let's take a walk. Wait a minute, I got sheep to deal with in this field. I know, let's go to the field. Well, you got the agricultural. You're, you're supposed to be tilling the ground over here. Yeah, we'll go for a brotherly walk. With the intention, obviously, of appearance, that he rose up against Abel and killed and killed him. Now imagine, as far as we can tell, and what we see in the scriptures here, no human had ever died or been killed before this moment. We don't see it anywhere else in scripture except for this moment. But Cain had witnessed and watched how they sacrificed animals. Did he turn around and sacrifice his brother like he did an animal? Either way, he killed Abel's wife. Likely the same way. But in verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? Now, most of us would have said, (laughs) as a parent, Where's your brother? What did you do to your brother? But God just gently says, where is, your bro- where is Abel, your brother? And he said, Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So God just simply asked a question, knowing exactly what happened. Cain, at this point, is now losing his mind because he's completely, obviously lost, and he's now clouded and in darkness so bad that he forgot that God knows all things. That God sees all things. That God is all present. And he sits there and lies to God. I don't know. Hello? And then he gets a little sass or more of a, a such a rebellious spirit you can see in someone who's in darkness. You can see a rebellious spirit in his response by saying, Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you were. You're the older brother. You were supposed to keep an eye. You're responsible for overseeing and making sure your brother's okay. But his attitude, his sass, his, his, 
rebellious spirit is now, stiff-neckedness is now against God himself. You can see the spiraling of the downward trend of someone who has not worshiping God rightly, allowing darkness to sin to come into the camp, and they're just spiraling downward, and it gets to the point where you see the rebellious spirit, a hardening of the hearts. How futile it was for Cain to lie to God. It's madness for him to think that God didn't know where Abel was. And how true that can be for us as well, isn't it? Are you by yourself and you're lying and you absolutely are in madness to think that God doesn't know? That actually Cain thought he could actually hide his sin from God? Even in Jude 11, we see in the scriptures, he warns us of the way of Cain. What is that way of Cain? That unbelief. That empty religion leading to jealousy and persecution of those truly godly people. The way of Cain. The ungodly coming against the godly. Of jealousy and envy. Darkness surrounding them. We see in 2 Timothy 3.5, there is no greater curse on the earth than an empty, vain religion, those who have a form of godliness but deny the power of God. Now we see here in verse 10 that God said, and what have you done? God loves asking questions to see if you're going to respond appropriately. So what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God didn't even give him a chance to even respond to that question. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, so now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you, a fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. You thought dad had it tough with the curse of the ground. You're going to have even a double whammy on the curse of the ground to a point where you can't even, even almost exist from uh, doing your agricultural uh, job there, tilling the ground. Not only will you not be able to get fruit from the the labor that you're doing, but you are going to be a vagabond, you're going to be a wanderer, you're going to be a fugitive out there trying to just stay alive. The curse upon the man. You're going to be homeless. And God's words here speaks of Abel's blood just spoke of the judgment of the, the, the fact that this just even was crying out to God and we see that repeated here of the blood is crying out from the ground and also in Numbers 35 verses 29-34 the blood of unpunished murderers defiles the land and God hears everything 
but such a curse upon Cain of what he did to his brother Abel. He will not find a resting place on all the earth. And what was Cain's response in verse 13? Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. No repentance still. No change of heart still. All he can do is think about himself and say, This punishment is more than I can bear. You're not fair, God. I should be able to get away with this, and I shouldn't have any consequences to this degree. Verse 14, surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Fascinating to me. The mercy of God. The even with the response that he gave to God and said, my punishment is greater than I can bear, and it's all about him. I shall be hidden from your face. I'm not going to be seeing you anymore, God. I'm not going to be, I'm a fugitive, a vagabond. I'm going to be wandering the earth. I don't know what's going to happen to me. And if someone finds me, they're going to kill me. <coughs> it's all about them. And therefore, God says, okay, I'll show mercy and I'm actually going to put a mark. Whatever mark it was, we don't know. But some kind of mark that everyone who would come in contact with it would know that that is the seal of God and who he's protected. You can't touch it. You cannot show mercy. But Cain didn't feel bad about his sin, did he? He was just upset that God decided to make his curse even worse than his father. Already bad enough trying to till the ground. But now God is going to make it to a point where I can't even make a livelihood and it's going to be a struggle and I'm going to be wandering on this earth. Who was Cain a fear of? Who was he afraid of at this point? Well, in the 130 years from Adam's creation to uh, uh, Abel's murder, a good many generations had arisen. A total population probably somewhere in the many thousands at this point. So he had a lot of people who were in the family would have found out and known and, uh, what he did to Abel, and the, all these family members would be looking for this man. That's who he was fearing. But then we see in verse 16, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. So he didn't go too far. Still east. And Cain knew his wife. Now we see again, he has a wife. And she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and named the 
called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So we see here in the scriptures that Cain <coughs> left the presence of God. He moved, got far away from the presence of God there, the eastern uh, east side of the Garden of Eden. He now has a wife. Where did the wife come from? Well, obviously, it's one of the daughters of Adam. And he has a wife. He, they bore a child named Enoch. We know in Genesis chapter 5, verse 4, we'll come to that, that Adam had several sons and daughters. And though marrying a sister was against the law of God, according to Leviticus 18, and Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 27, 22, at this point in time, God has not put down that law that you cannot marry your sister or half-sister. Because the gene pool was still very clean. They were going to have inbreeding issues that God then warns later on because the gene pool started becoming uh, dirtier and dirtier. It's like, a, it's like a fresh water coming out of the ground. You can drink it. It's fresh. It's pure. By the time it rolls down a stream several miles, it's less likely you will want to drink it because it becomes not as pure from the original source. So just like the gene pool, you cannot marry a relative, close relative, or even half-sister or anything like that because of the, of, uh, of the genetics-wise, it causes problems in that uh, birth very high likely birth defects of that child. So we see later on in the, in the, in the, in the law that God said to the people, you cannot marry uh, a sister or a half-sister anymore because it's too risky. But at this time, it was okay for that to happen. It had to have happened. But Cain sit there, he has a wife, he has a child, and he starts a city. Huh, we see urbanization going on now. The city starting to pop up. And he names it after his son, not after God, and even honoring God in any way whatsoever. He, actually, he lifts human up. He lifts his son up as being something to tout and to glorify. And then to Enoch, verse 18, was born Erad. And Erad begot Mehu uh, Yaal, I think is how you say it, Mehuel, whatever that was going to be, begot Methusheel and Methusheel begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Silla. And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and livestock. So we now we see another uh, livelihood of making tents or living in tents and making tents and, and having livestock. The barns are, are now being <laughs> part of that, I think. His brother's name was Jubal. His father was of all those who play the harp and flute. Now we see the, 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 the musical talents coming out uh, that God has given to man. So harp and flute. So now we see string instruments and, and wind instruments now being God-given wisdom to man to be able to play. And as for Scylla, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was uh, Naamah. And so we see here that God here in the early days of mankind gave them the ability to do all kinds of things. So many times historically people say you lived in caves and you didn't even, didn't even do anything with bronze and iron or anything until 
well, yeah, thousands of years later. No, we see it right from the very beginning. God gave wisdom to man how to make things out of, out of uh, bronze and iron. The picture of one of the rapid advancements. Exceeding generations quickly made progress in all kinds of these areas found of a city here. Home building, music, the arts, metalwork, all of this coming about in society. Now, Lamech means conqueror. And he was the seventh from generation from Adam on Cain's side. And Lamech's arrogance that we see in verses uh, 23 and 24 verses of, of chapter 4 is a contrast to Enoch who was the seventh from Adam on Seth's side in Jude 14. We also see here in these, these, this, these verses, verse 19, that Lamech, out of his pride and his selfishness, took two wives. The first bigamist, or the first uh, uh, of... Uh, Polygamy is coming about here because that's what happens when you're in the flesh. God said marriage between a, one man and one woman. You see them, they part from God, they leave the presence of God, they don't want the things of God, they go start their own city life, their own ways of life. They now have the arts, the music, the, the abilities, the craftsmen, all the uh, capabilities that God has given them to do. And what do they do? They part from the truths of God. And Lamech takes on two wives, Ada and Selah. And both of those names, Ada means pleasure, ornament, or beauty, and Selah uh, means to, to shade or, or luxurious, or and it could be potentially involving the covering of her hair, of how, she, uh, how beauty she is. But that's what Lamech was all about with his wives. Is the physical look, the loveliness upon the woman. But then in verse 23, Lamech said to his wife, Adon and Sila, hear my voice. He's talking to his two wives. Hear my voice, wise of Lamech. Listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall avenge sevenfold, then Lamech, me, 77-fold. Such arrogance, such pride. If God only said that, uh, you know, put on to Cain for killing his brother, this, well, I deserve even more protection. And these people didn't even kill it. Hurt, hurt, he, yes, they wounded me. Yes, a young man hurt me. But that doesn't justify for you to kill the man. And then sit there and deserve that you think you should be protected even more than Cain was. Such arrogance when you walk away from the presence of God and you go and do your own thing somewhere. It just spirals out of control more and more. And then verse 25, Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God had, has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel whom Cain killed and as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and his name, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. 
what a transformation take place here. Adam and, and his wife have another son. His son now is Seth. And this son now is appointed. They recognize that God had given them another son to now is going to be what God's promise of the heir of the seed of the woman that he promised. Because Cain didn't work. Abel wasn't it. But now, for some reason, God reveals another son to them, Seth, and you see the results that you know that God is working here. Because when he was, this son was born and they named him Enosh, then men, the people around that saw this birth, what did it cause them to do? It caused them to call on the name of the Lord. Here we see the very first revival. We see a party, we see some issues going on within and around the, that community, and now God brings in this, this young, this birth, and brings about, and it causes, everyone could see what God was doing, and it caused them to what? Call the name, on the name of the Lord. These were wicked days, as we will see as we get into chapter 6. These were wicked days. Things were getting worse and worse and worse. But this revival caused these men to, to turn around, even though there was a decline in spiritual, decline is now spiritual resurgence. This a clear turn to back to the Lord. Now we see in verse, <coughs> in chapter 5, we will go through this and we will see the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And he created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. So what was the name of Adam and Eve, the first two human beings he created? Mankind. It is absolutely scriptural appropriate to call all of us mankind because that is what God called us. And if you take a look at this chapter and all the way into chapter 6, verse 6, we're talking about 1,656 years between creation of man and the flood. Incredible amount of time, and the population was tremendous. If you go and just conservatively do the math and the multiplication and the, the births, and if a certain percentage had children who had certain children, it adds up, it would be millions of people by the time we were into the flood. But we see here, this is a good reason to believe when you take a look at the genealogy of Adam, that, the, that Adam had a direct account of what was taking place and was being preserved by Adam himself. And it was then passed down to Moses who acted as the messenger here in writing of the first five books. Now, how that all was preserved, God knows. How it was preserved and passed along, God knows. Did God directly give the information to Moses directly? Could be. But as we see here, God presented a genealogy, and we will see here ten generations played out here in the remaining of these verses. In verse 3, we see Adam lived 130 years and begot a son of his own likeness, after his image and named him Seth. 
And after he begot Seth, the, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were what? 930 years, and then what? He died. You're going to see this theme, he died, multiple times here in this chapter. Keep a note of why, why that is important. So here we are. He had a son, Seth. It was in the image and the likeness of, of the fallen Adam. It was just like they had sons and daughters, and, 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 and he bore these children, and then they were multiplying as we can see. In verse 6, Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and then what? He died. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. There's a trend here, isn't there? Long years. But man. There's an end there. Verse 12, Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalalel. And after he begot Mahalalel, it sounds Hawaiian to me for some reason. Maybe, you know. Canaan lived 840 years and, and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. After he begot Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. So what happened to Jared? Well, Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. And after he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters as well. So all of the days of Jared were 962 years, and he, he died too. Enoch, verse 21, lived 65 years. So he was the youngest of all of them when he finally had a child. And his name was Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch, woo, catch the language here, walked with God. Walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all of the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Wait a minute here. Hold the presses. It says that God didn't allow him to die. That God took him home to be with God. Took him out of this land without having him die like the rest of his previous ancestors. What's the difference? Enoch walked with God. What's the difference when someone dies here today in our present time? If you walk with God, you will not die. You will immediately be in the presence of the Lord. 
you do not walk with God, you will not be in the presence of the Lord. That makes all the difference in one's life. Are you with me? Remember, here is a sign of the very first rapture. That is what we're hoping for in today's life. That we, as we walk with God, God will come back and rapture his children out of here so we do not have to face death. Physical death. We will be raptured just like Enoch because we walk with God. And that's our promise. So here we have... Enoch walked with God. He was not, for God took him. And Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech, which is a different Lamech. Enoch is a different Enoch than that was under the Cain's lineage. That's a different Enoch. And after he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he, he died. So here Enoch, the son of Jared, was carried away to God in a miraculous way. Even in a society that was wicked, here this man walked with God, Enoch did. Born 622 years after the creation of Adam, he was during the same time as Adam for 308 years. Whoa! You're talking to the very first man. Adam. Walking and talking with him for 308 years. Imagine that conversation. Oh, let me tell you what the Garden of Eden was like. What it was like when we walked in the garden, in the midst of the garden, the coolness of the day, the closeness, the relationship. But then what happened? Why did, why did even you take of the knowledge of the tree of the good and evil? Why did you do that? Can you imagine these conversations? Those would be hard conversations to have. Dad, Mom, why did you sin like that and cause jealousy? Answering from his heart. Hard conversations. But God took him. 69, 69 years before the birth of Noah, while he was only 365. There was one other occasion that we see God rapturing or taking someone without allowing them to die physically, and that was the Elijah in 2 Kings 2. Perhaps Enoch and Elijah was going to be part of God's plan to kind of sort and give us a picture as believers, as, as a joyful believers who will still be in the flesh when the Lord Jesus returns in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, and after we are gathered with him. Amen? But walking with God means walking by faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. It means walking in the light, 1 John 1, verses 5 and 7. Walking in agreement with God, Amos 3, 3. After walking like this with God, it was as if one day God told Enoch, you don't need to walk home, why don't you just come home with me? Hebrews 
11.5 tells us of the foundation of Enoch's walk with God. It was by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased Someone who walks by faith and not by sight pleases God in their life. And here we see, there we are, a man after God's heart of pleasing him and loving him and, 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 and walking with God. Methuselah, 969 years of age. He's the oldest recorded in this son of Enoch. And his life overlapped Adam by 243 years. And he was connected to Noah and his sons, forming a connecting link between the Garden of Eden and the post-flood world. And God took Methuselah just before the flood happened. And then we wrap up here, verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and had a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And after he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Yes, we all come from Adam. Yes, we all come from Seth. Yes, we all come from Noah. And yes, all of us come from one of his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We see our genealogy. We see our heritage. I don't need to get blood work done to see where I came from. To know where I, I, my basis of who I am and where I came from. I have a very strong foundation that God created Adam and I come from Adam. Do you understand that? I don't need to know. Other than that lineage and that genealogy right there. You remember out of Cain's line, you hear nothing after you see the last me excuse me, message of the last child was born to him. After that, nowhere in the scriptures do you see Cain and any of his lineage. Gone. God brought a new son to Adam and his wife. And that is where the seed will come from as Jesus comes in and takes on God takes on the body of a man. The overwhelming emphasis of Genesis 5 is that all these men died except for the one who walked with God. They were all under sin. They were all subject to death, the fruit of sin. Some of them, many of them were great men. None of them was the deliverer God had promised. And I love as you go back and you study these scriptures, you look at the genealogy, you look at the scriptures. I love the linkage as we go through the rest of the Old Testament. The 
first three chapters of Genesis answers and speaks to the great questions of life. God gave us a genealogy to give evidence of the promise of the seed to come, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But how did Moses write the first five books without being there himself personally? How did, he, how did this information survive the flood? Well, if you look at the genealogy, which is so important, Adam was, had a link to Abraham. How? Adam was alive with, when Methuselah was born. Methuselah was alive with Noah, and Noah has a contemporary of Terah, the father of Abraham. And that span of time with just those three, three to four men there. That's it. God had to preserve between just a handful of men the entire history of the creation of the heavens, the earth, and the creation of man. Not thousands of people, not generations, just a few men, that was it. God preserved it through them. And that was a span of 2,000 years to Noah. Preserved by the Holy Spirit through these few men. Or maybe God just directly spoke to Moses and said, here's the facts, write them down, here's where it goes. Either way, I'm good with it. It's God's word. It's truth. And you can bet your life on it. So how do you know where you come from? How do you know that we came from the Garden of Eden? How do we know that man was created and I am a descendant of the, of the creation of Adam and Eve? Well, Paul speaks to it in the book of, to the, the Corinthian people. And he speaks about Adam and that all die. All of us all die. That death is an example or the fruit of the sin of the fallen man that came from Adam and Eve. That's the first evidence that God speaks of it. That death is the, the link or the, the carry all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And the second evidence that he gives us is in Romans 2, that we all were given a human conscience. Every human has a conscience. Every human being has a conscience of right and wrong. Every baby. And that we know right from wrong. We know that murder is wrong. We know lying is wrong. We know stealing is wrong. We know, we know when you don't steal is right. When you don't murder, it's right. We, we know these things because God has given every human being, that's what links it together, a conscience. That is the origin that comes to every man and woman. The challenge that you and I face is the fruit of sin, and that is that we do not live up to our conscience that God gives us. It reveals the fallen nature of man. And that we must need and trust with all of our heart and mind, soul, and strength, God to live a life that is righteous and good. That he uses that conscience to draw us to him because we will not draw naturally to him. We want to go against him. But God is intervening and working in your life and can and will and has overcome that sin. He died on the cross for your sins. 
and wipe them away. Walk with God. Pursue God every day, regardless of how you feel. Amen?